Yeah, I had. To. I I wish I, I I wish I knew more about Zoom because I keep on getting those alarms that pop in and out with little doorbells. But uh, eventually, I'll figure out a way to weed those out. So. Well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I looked at your event schedule, especially for Vote Common Good, and you are very busy. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you've got a lot of uh, conversations going on in a variety of different locations. Well, not probably all the same location, your basement or your home or wherever you're working yeah. from. Yeah. Sometimes I'm on this side of the basement. Sometimes I face that way. Tonight for our electionary, I'll face that way where there's a whole drop, backdrop set up over there. But tonight or today, it's I'm in this location. Well, that's good. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. It, 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 in the now, just just for some background, what what is a couple of questions though? What is vote common good, and how did you get there from having been a pastor? What's what was that transition, and why this? Yeah, I, uh, we started Vote Common Good officially in January of 2018, uh, sorry, June of 2018. And it was a direct response to a lot of us as religious leaders uh, and people who wanted to be in the public space of faith and civic engagement, believing that Donald Trump was a unique threat to the well-being of this planet and to the health and emotional and physical health of people on this planet or in this country. Never did we imagine that others would see as clearly as we did what a hazard he is to the the health and the well-being of people in this country. It's just been proven out in the last, you know, 168 hours that the man truly, if you listen to him and do what he says, you really could be putting yourself in harm. And so we started Vote Common Good as a, a way to ask religious people to stop the reelection of Donald Trump. And uh, we formed uh, this as a, a nonprofit group of a certain kind. It's it's what's referred to as a 501c4, uh, not to bore people with you know tax code, but in the tax code, there's uh, different kinds of nonprofits. 501c is the nonprofit charitable arm. Then there's a C3 and a C4 option. C3 are churches or C3s, lots of other YMCAs, a C3, other, other groups like that. Yeah, thanks for the little uh, ad there. I yeah, team, team Idaho, baby, team Idaho. Um, they are, uh, and, and C3s have certain limitations put on them um, about what they can do politically. They cannot speak for or against the election of a particular candidate. And that's an issue I really want you to go ahead and take some time to speak on because you can do that as a C4, but it's something that I as a pastor can't do in my congregation as a C3, if I'm understanding that distinction. Yeah, well, it's curious whether you as a pastor can or you as an organization spend money on doing such and such. I, I, I am on the side that you can do a whole lot more than most pastors do. Most pastors don't talk about politics on the unless you're on the religious right and then you do it every day all the time. Like like you, you think you think Pastor Jeffries uh, from, you know, from T Dallas is not talking about election. Of course he is. You think when the evangelicals have a meeting in their building called Tr uh, evangelicals for Trump that Donald Trump is at, they're not doing. Of course they are. Progressive and left-minded and not conservative types anywhere in that in that sphere tend not to do it, not because of the legal requirement, but because we don't want tend to not want to offend the one or two people in our congregation that seemingly uh, will listen to us on politics, but would never listen to us on the other issues that we talk to about how to live your life. I mean, this is my great this is my great comment to church leaders. They're like, well, I don't want to tell people in my church who to vote for. I'm like, do they listen to you? You people in your church, because I've been a pastor for a long time. No one's like, hey, you know what I should worry about when I go to vote is what does Doug think about this? Like the influence I have on their life is one of myriad influences in their lives. And 
the 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 over uh, extended uh, uh, sense of importance that pastors have about their influence in their That's congregation good. cracks me up, right? I'm like these people, uh, you know, who, whom I love and try to influence, and they influence me. They're not they're not just walking along as as some sort of you know. Uh, 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 followers of every word I say. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot more you yeah. can do. So there's a lot more. Good to know. That's good. But a 501c4 is the kind of nonprofit that can talk specifically about election outcomes. That's not all you do. We're not a PAC. We don't spend money on candidates. We're not a political operating arm. We're, we exist for the common good. So vote common good works great for us in that in that kind of language. Um, but we, we, we are able to say that this particular candidate puts the common good at harm. And and that's what we're doing. And look, we're, we're, we're not boosters for the Democratic Party. I think everyone should vote for the Democratic candidate in this next election. I ask them to, if for no other reason than to stop the reelection of Donald Trump. But we are specifically wanting to make sure that Donald Trump does not continue to inflict this country and this planet with his um, lack of ability to to be a to be a, a, an effective president. And 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 as a pastor, like it can sound really personal and sound like I just hate the guy. And people have told me that they think that's what I'm doing. They're like, hey, you got you to gotta ratchet it back a little bit. I think you're, you're falling into the category of the haters. And, and in all honesty, I don't hate Donald Trump. I, I, I believe that Donald Trump is, as we all are, the beloved child of God, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But look, right, not every light of the world should be the president of the United States. And he's one of them. And he should let his dim little light go shine doing something else and stop bothering the good people of this country by continuing to fail day after day as president. This isn't personal about him. It's personal about the damage that he's causing because of his inability to perform this job duty. And this is the place where I wish there was not a code in our in our uh, charitable contribution category of the federal government that says you can't speak about issues that affect the common good. You have to be muted around the election of a candidate um, if if you're going to pursue the common good. It's it's put in place as a muzzle. This is the one place where, with my conservative friends, I agree. It's referred to actually as the Johnson Amendment. And it, right. it has that name because it was Lyndon Johnson who became the president as a congressman who put this into place because then they wanted to prevent churches from talking against, uh, for talking for seg uh, the, the stopping of segregation for civil rights. So Johnson was on the other side of that issue before. He put this into place to keep pastors from agitating to bring it into civil rights. And why pastors on the liberal side of the persuasion or progressives continue to push forward on the Johnson Amendment makes no sense to me. It's not in our Constitution. It's it's IRS tax code. It's right. wrongheaded. It should go away. We should all be pushing against it. The one place where I could join together with my conservative pastor friends and say, let's bring an end to the Johnson Amendment and tell pastors that they don't have to um, not mention. Because what pastors do is they talk sideways about it all the right. time. Right. And so it's not honest and it's it's not helpful. And then um, it's it's this way of sort of under the guise of being nonpolitical that you just become sideways about it. So all that to say, vote common good doesn't have to worry about any of that. We travel the country. We try to tell stories of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and won't be doing so in 2020. And we want to engage people in that in that conversation and help give them a, an off ramp from voting for Trump. And we've been interviewing many, many uh, voters who are in that category and their stories are fascinating. They're very similar to one another. Um, but 
but that's what we do. And so we travel the country now traveling it digitally and, uh, you know, with a Monday cooking show and a Tuesday electionary and uh, a Wednesday uh, or Friday a pray for the president campaign. We're going to start a, a Thursday well, and, house concert and all kinds and, of stuff. And I, I, I was just reviewing the blog uh, on the website, Vote Common Good, and uh, was looking at the prayer. Uh, you had a prayer in there that was um, also reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount yeah. and just kind of went through these different elements of the Sermon on the Mount, really focused at the president, but also not focused at clobbering the president. Uh, it was it was this attempt to be both critical and gracious at the same time. Huh. And and uh, I thought that's, that's hard to do, uh, first of all. But I thought it was also really laudable that it's I, I think there's a perhaps maybe you can uh, fill this in or say more about it not only are you trying to provide information but it seems like you're also trying to model you know how do we how do we critique without becoming i guess overly partisan or or anger uh reactive you know that kind of way yeah you know we're, we're trying to do uh, we're, we're trying to live up to the standard that we all uh, want from someone else, right? Is to speak the truth as you see it. You know, I, I saw somebody wearing a shirt when I was uh, on a social distancing walk, but meaning by myself. Right. And she was coming the other way. She looked like she was a trainer. She had a group of people. She might have been training on a walk and so on. And she had the shirt that said, uh, be yourself. Others will adjust. <laughs> I kind of like that. Um, so, so we're trying to model this idea where you truth tell from your from your vantage point right. with the up, uh, and it's not too much to ask people to have a certain level of humility in that. Like you know, you you could be wrong, um, but also to not become so um, bound up with, well, what could I possibly say about this? Um, and, and look again, uh, there have been a lot of presidents, people that ran for office that I haven't supported. I've never done anything like this. I've never given up my previous way of life, gotten on a bus, tried to raise millions of dollars to travel around the country and ask religious people to serve the common good by stopping the election of someone. In fact, hearing myself say that, it's like you've become a crazy person, right? Like you're a middle-aged man in your basement talking on the internet uh, and you've, you've fully jumped the, you know, I should move to, to Idaho if I want to fill out the, you know, the... Uh, this <laughs> right here. Um, You'd be welcome out here, by the way. So, <laughs> right, that's right. I call this my bunker of resistance, not my underground yeah. bunker of resistance. Um, so, so this is this is outrageous, right? What what are we doing? But it's it to, to the earlier part of the conversation. This is what some of us were trying to do in the emerging church world: was we were trying to say that your faith ought to compel you to the benefit and blessing of others. That's the language we used around Solomon's porch, the church that I pastored and started for, and was part of for 20 years that, you know, we want to be a benefit and blessing to the world. Well, just because someone tells you that politics isn't the place where you should be a benefit and blessing doesn't mean it's not the place you should be the benefit and blessing. And in this particular case, because we use a representative form of democracy based on counting votes to establish who is going to be in what positions, we are all obligated into a world in which we can choose to influence that world or not. And I want people of Christian faith to be influencing that, that world, uh, not for their own self-interest. And, you know, we like uh, one of our next uh, prayers that will come out 
I think it's going to be based on First Corinthians or on uh, on Philippians too. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. Like there, there's a way of organizing yourself in which what you're approaching going forward is the c- care for the collective. I think it's what Jesus would call the kingdom of God. Uh, and uh, I actually see Jesus as a very political character. I did a, an Easter sermon for for a church. Um, where I talked about the crucifixion and resurrection as a political act and a political response. That when the gospel wants to say that Jesus doesn't stay dead, what he's saying is that the government's power under Pontius Pilate to kill Jesus and under the orders of Herod uh, are not going to be followed. It's an act of civil disobedience to to see the resurrection from the dead. I know some people don't want to see anything in Jesus that way. They don't want to see the Sermon on the Mount. They don't want to see the, the teaching. They don't want to see the, the de- demonstrative uh, uh, way of the miracles um, in that way. But I think that's exactly what they are. I think they're pushbacks to a political system that was different than our political system. And I don't think we need to tell stories of martyrdom i think we need to tell stories of engagement and so we can leave the sacrificial system behind as jesus called us to and we can step forward into something more more generative and our particular broken form of democracy is what's available to us and i think the idea that people want to sit it out is hard and that's hard for me i'd love to hear your thoughts on this because i'm while i'm not an anabaptist just because i'm not much of a joiner um the anabaptist tradition if i somehow i could mix it you know anabaptist with eastern Orthodox in sort of a 21st century way. That's the kind of faith I'd like to live. Um, nice one. I like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't that be great if that was if that was around? Um, that, that, that reminds me of uh, Brian McLaren's book, uh, Generous Orthodoxy, where he linked Anabaptists with Anglicans. And I thought, no, oh, I like that one too. <laughs> yes, that was that, that that was insightful. Yeah. <laughs> call that he had. So I don't know, you know, because the Anabaptists have said, you know, like consider the other kingdom, and. Um, uh, as, as I've personally grown, I've realized, hey, you know, I have a lot of identities in my own life. I have the identity in my family that you know, we're popping in on Zoom calls with two sides of our family and then with our kids. And so sometimes I'm the brother, sometimes I'm the son, sometimes I'm the dad, sometimes I'm the husband, sometimes I'm the uncle, sometimes I'm the cousin. Like I have all these different identities and they're not all the same and they don't all play out the same in, in every every context and our faith is is really no different i think that we find ourselves in different identities at different moments and are called to different to different acts of responsibility and i would say in this moment 2016 2020 that is sharpened in clarity for me about what i need to be doing and as an enneagram eight it doesn't bother me to say to someone else you should consider this for yourself as well like i'm not gonna you know if i thought it would do any good to tell you what to do i might tell you what to do i just don't think that's good for you or for me and i don't think it works but consider making the stopping of this presidential uh, administration a goal I think is a good thing and and I think yeah. I think more people should be doing it I didn't I mean I, I was lightly stumping around for Barack Obama in 2008 but nothing aggressive uh, I thought you know there's other people that have that in their purview um, and uh, and even in 2016 I uh, uh, if, if I'd known Donald Trump could have won, I probably would have been doing this back then, but it would have been I, a I different, uh, yeah. myself that, that, that there was no chance. Hey, yeah, I think we were all kind of on that page, like, oh, this, this isn't going to happen. But I, I think one of the things I hear you saying, and, and I think it fits with some of the, this, the challenges historically we've had as Anabaptists, is uh, somewhere deep in our DNA. Now, I didn't grow up Anabaptist. I came to it uh, mm. through the uh, conservative then American Baptist Church, and then landed among the Anabaptists and went, oh, this is my family. 
but I grew up Presbyterian actually. And so I, I had this kind of mutt uh, behind me, but coming to the Anabaptists, there is this tendency that when you find something in society or culture that you uh, find um, that you can't participate in rather than engage it and change it, you become sectarian, you separate, you uh, become you know, an Amish farmer in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and you, you just have your own little, maybe not little, but you have your own commune. You know, it's almost uh, this uh, segregation away from the world rather than engagement in. And I think one of the most vital, thing for me, vital things for me was uh, engaging Anabaptism at a missional level. Uh, to, to push that mission back into our communities where we live, the people we work with. And it picks up with the identities you described. Uh, I am not only an Anabaptist Christian. I mean, that might be a core piece, and some identities are, you know, more significant or, or kind of more bedrock than others. But I, I'm a high school track coach. I'm a neighbor. I have all those different family relationships that you uh, alluded to. I share those as well. Uh, father, husband, brother, yeah. uh, son. And, and in those identities, it begs me to be engaged in those things rather than to separate from. Yeah, well, totally. And look, I, I don't know enough about Anabaptists. You could, you could teach me on this one, but I believe that every religious movement and the denominations to me are, tend to be best understood as ethnic religious movements from a certain time frame right. that the time when Anabaptists sort of found their, their, their place, what was happening in the world was the, the creation of nation states and that countries were taking on a particular tonality. And even in the United States, there were certain regions that were for certain groups of people with, you know, uh, right. certain leaders. And we even named some of our states, like Pennsylvania after this. Yeah. So what you had was the way you engaged in the nation state democracy was to create a community of people who thought and, and believed in a particular way. Then you as a group would then relate to the other groups. In that in that way and that was the zeitgeist that was the 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 melu i think that was going on and anabaptists just haven't transitioned from that to being in a a more uh, uh stew-like mix of well not everybody on our block is like us or in our state or like we're we're mixed in this thing together which frankly is a very new human experiment that we've been doing for i don't know 250 to 500 years right in the world and in this country it's not entirely sure that all of our systems you know work well with it or that it's even the best way for it to go i don't know we we're, we're you know we're all figuring it out so it just feels like any of our traditions no, no matter and i'm not saying some are better than others you know but they're all created in a space and time with a set of imaginations that tell us how we ought to organize most effectively and the, yeah. Well, I've spent a lot of my life trying to ask people to sort of let that go so you can grab on to something new. Um, I'm not entirely sure it makes any difference because as soon as you let go of that and grab onto something new in about 20 years, as you and I know, having both started churches, it could be two decades long. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm living the imagination of some people from my 20-year-old self, and exactly. they won't let me yeah. free from what I wanted 20 years ago. Yeah. And so it doesn't take long for the human uh, 
mind to sort of latch on to a, a right way of, of being. So we have to then instead develop the skills to adapt no matter what system we're in. And the lack of adaptation, uh, I think, is, uh, is really the, the problem in churches and yeah. religious communities. And so if someone's a convert, ever a convert, convert religiously, a convert in their diet, a convert, you know, from never running track. And if you're a high school track coach, you're probably meeting kids every spring that you're like, give track a try this year. And they're like, I don't like to run. Right. And, you know, and then they show up the next year and they go, got a convert. Yeah. Got a convert. And you're like, it's, it takes a lot of forces to move someone right. to a new way of living and being. And frankly, as we know, as pastors or as social uh, organizers, there's not a lot of incentive to create a, a stage in which people outgrow you. Like, it's funny, as a pastor, I would find myself feeling like, I really want you to grow and to develop as a human being, as a person, and all of our systems, like Jesus said of the Sabbath, are made to benefit humanity. Humanity doesn't exist to benefit our system, and all of this needs to be for your growth. But please don't grow so much that you don't need us anymore, or don't grow so much that it takes right. you away from us. Like there's kind of this desire for you to grow, but not ever to grow enough where you don't fit here. So we have this tug and pull that we're just not very, very good at. And it's hard enough to do that with one person, like a child or a spouse or a lover. It's even harder to do that with like, I don't know, a family of somebody else's family and you know, somebody over 20 years. And uh, So I, I'm not even sure that churches make sense anymore. I mean, this has been a, a very deep question I've had for my entire life uh, because I didn't, wasn't raised in religion. So I've never had a hard wire into churches are the savior of the world. I'm like, no, churches are the mean places where mean people go to tell you that they're better than you. That's, that's pretty much my starting point in life on church. I've grown a lot since then, but um, so I'm not sure that churches even make sense or roles like you and I have had uh, uh, yeah. are, are, are serving humanity at all. I, I don't know. I, I think this uh, one of the, the fellows that you probably you and I probably have overlapped with is uh, Alan Roxborough. Yeah. And uh, Al would frequently and continues to, to speak about dis, uh, continuous change yeah. and adaptation. And I have a hunch that this moment that the churches are going through in well around the world, but primarily North America, where we really love to hold on to a model and say, we got the technique, we got it figured out. Uh, this moment, this pandemic is a, a wonderful opportunity to go, okay, what does church really look like? Yep. And it's, I think yeah, it, it's not going to change everything, but also normal is gone. I don't think normal we're going to get back to. So it's forcing us to ask some questions about adaptation. What is the church? What does it look like? What good is it? And uh, how does it engage? Yeah. So I think it's a, it, I think it's a great, it, it's a, it's a very, it's a terrible uh, opportunity. I mean, it, um, it, it, yeah, I think the yeah. church can have some creative influence on the outcome. I, I was in, I was in a meeting one time and a guy, a guy shared something very similar to this. He said, Hey, I worked for a company that made drill bits and it was one of the premier drill bit making companies in the, in the world. And they would sell to lots of brands, put their brands on it. And a new president came in and he said, um, he got all of us kind of vice presidents and middle managers together and was talking about the changes that they thought needed to happen in the company. And the, and the new president said, what is it that we make here? And people would say, we make drill bits. And then uh, he said, well, you know, say more. Well, uh, we make top quality drill bits and then we make the best drill bits in the world. And we make, and he said, might I suggest that what we make here are holes? 
What drill bits exist for is to put a hole in something. Now we might make holes with water in the future. We might make holes with lasers. We might make holes with whole new kinds of drill bits, but we're not making drill bits. We're making a drill bit to be used to make a hole. Right. I thought it was a great, he was talking about churches basically exactly. saying, yeah. do you think you exist to have a church? Do you think the point of church is church? Because if it's the point and not the, the tool used for a point, you're doing something else. And I, I just think that was difficult for the people in that drill bit company. Okay. I think it's difficult for all of us in any place that we find ourselves because to recognize that the very actions that we do are in service of something else and thereby we could become uh, less useful than, than ever before. Um, but we hold, on, we hold on to our thing to keep doing the thing that we do. So yeah. We make drill bits. All we're going to do is make drill bits, even if in the future there are better ways to make holes. But no, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't use water pressure. No, we don't use lasers. We make drill bits. Make drill bits. Yeah, and uh, that's probably the uh, motto of all those organizations that no longer exist. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you can see in like the the people work that, that people like you and I do. The the reason you, I mean, the thing you end up thinking about is all the people who really benefit from the drill bit, right? right. To, you know, to, to just break this, this metaphor down too far. And at some point you say to yourself, and maybe you've experienced it recently, where you're like, if we make this decision we're about to make, which we did at Solomon's Porch about a year and a half ago, that's going to mean that some things that are super important to some people and have become an incredibly um, uh, crucial part of their life right. is not going to be available for them. And my friend Dwight, Dwight Friesen, who you might know, oh, I'd right, imagine right. you know Dwight. Right. Dwight has said many genius things in his life. I only remember one of them. Uh, and it was uh, that most of us don't fear change. What we fear is loss. Right. And if we don't recognize that when we bring change, we're also bringing loss, then we're not understanding what people's uh, emotional struggle is. And right. I thought he was really right. So he was saying, oh, don't... Uh, uh, just do change without loss. He was just saying what people are responding to is not the change. It's the loss that they're going to experience. And attend to that. Attend to that. Or be aware of it. Yeah. And man, and this is where, why I stay in evangelical in the sense that like I stay in the Jesus story because it is a just brilliant way of telling all of this. The, the, the whole passion event and don't hold on to me for I have to go ahead. Like all of the narrative there are the, is this human narrative, right? Of which uh, the systems that we create to hold and to propel and to, to compel that narrative in the world um, wants to be about. And, and it's, it's just shocking how often we are finding ourselves uh, having to do the, the big thing as well as all the little things. And it's just really hard. Like it's, it's hard to get up every Sunday and come up with, you know, s seven to 27 minutes worth of things to say that are going to, you know, <laughs> be in service to people. One of the things I, I like right. to say, I, I, I have a group that I, I run a master's degree program for, and I'm going to say this to them on uh, next week when we have this online course um, is look, the, there's this old critique that, you know, most preachers have like five things that they have to say, and they just keep saying them over and over and over again in, in different ways. I said, take the, take that as a challenge. Try to get from two things to five. That would be great. <laughs> like, and don't think you have to have something every, every, they don't, people don't need a fresh, a fresh take from you every 168 hours. You know, uh, you can be like someone's favorite album. 
and be that place in their life that that uh, reminds them of of what it is that that you've done before. And I just think we That's we've liberating. <laughs> done a lot of things with our roles. And I mean, I can reflect on this twenty years after yeah. and thirty years after, and you know, uh, uh, six eight months out here. That yeah, there's just a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of things that we burden ourselves with that are. Um, but it's also how we manage our anxiety. And I don't know if, if you've realized this, but I just think all of us find a different way to sort of manage the, the chaos of the world. And so we, we do things and we come up with stuff and we look around our lives and like, yeah, all of this, whatever your this is, that's how you manage your, uh, your discomfort and your passions that, aren't, that aren't, aren't playing out. So if we can just see everyone's actions as some version of them trying their best to get along, um, maybe it helps a little. Uh, I'm not, no, so I want to I want to steer back a little bit to vote for common good, but I think that last comment just kind of is a good segue. You really want to see the best in other people that they're they're really trying their best. Most yeah. of us, anyway. Yeah, yeah but th there are times when the the best that they have to offer just isn't good enough for what is required <laughs> of them. Totally. Um, Thanks for bringing up the president of the United States again. That was a great yeah, that was a great segue. <laughs> But, uh, awesome. uh, and I so say a little bit more. I want to I want to move toward. Mm -hmm. We've only got a few more minutes here, but I want to make sure that we include probably about ten more minutes, if that's okay. Yeah, I got. I, um, I want to move toward. You know, what, is, what is the pledge that that vote common good has? And say a little bit about more of that about that pledge. And I mean. Not too many people would think, oh, that's a wonderful piece of scripture that's great for weddings. Why are you talking about politics? Yeah, well, we created what we call the Love in Politics Pledge, and it's a voter's right. pledge. It's not a pledge right. that we ask candidates to take. It's right. a pledge right. that we ask voters to take. In fact, there's, there's a whole lot of groups that want to really put a lot of pressure on candidates. I'm like, what? <laughs> Wait. Just having been someone who's been a leader, like every candidate, everybody who's elected, they're also managing their anxiety. They've also made a set of promises. They're also living inside of a story. Like, good grief! You're just, just wasting your time trying to, you know, hold somebody to a new, a new, a new standard. The best thing we can do to change our policy is change our policymakers. So that's that's sort of the cleanest way. Uh, but so we have a policy, a pledge for voters, and we call it the Love and Politics Pledge. It's based on First Corinthians thirteen. As you, as you mentioned, which is this love passage that is often utilized at weddings because weddings in the United States and a lot of North, North American culture is the one of the few places where you can talk out loud about a commitment of love between people in a culturally appropriate way. So we just bang that drum until we put a hole in it. Um, where I think the original context of that writing was not about uh, a man loving his husband or a woman loving his wife or a man loving his wife or wife or husband. It was about how a community is going to live with one another and live with the world, right? right. And right. in that context, and because we just lack the capacity to talk about love as a driving force for our world and society. And for I, I created this thing, but it came out, I was working on a book before Donald Trump ruined the world called um, Let Love Lead. And I was trying to suggest that love should be for religious leaders and for others, the primary driving force. And there's something curious, if I can just tangent for one minute yeah. that got me into all of this and why we ended up with the love and politics pledge. And that is in, in a lot of the churches that, uh, that I 
uh, know and, and work with, they have this whole system of protection of the clergy so the clergy doesn't harm the, the parishioners. Right. And so there's boundary training that goes on. And part of the boundary training is that the pastor has to be separated from the congregation. And there's certain things you can't do or say, like lots of people won't hug or there'll only be an arm hug. And there's certain things you won't do and certain things you won't say. And I love you is one of the things a lot of these trainings teach you not to do. Right. So here we have a community and a person, a pastor whose job it is to admonish people to love one another as God has loved you that we admonish us to love our enemies, to be like God and love the entire world, but I can't say I love you. Now that is whacked out to a point that is uh, under some, uh, because we can't figure out a better way to protect ourselves than letting love be the first, second, and third call. So in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, it's this faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And if I have not love, I become like a clanging gong. And and, and then it's uh, it, it lists out these 17 phrases, some of which might go together, some of which are separate, uh, about what sort of a description of love. It's kind of a, it's kind of a dot, dot, dot at the end, like love is all of this. And we thought that love should be the guiding force in politics. As a bonus, and on a side note, you read through 1 Corinthians 13 definition and description of love, and it sounds like the opposite of Donald Trump's Twitter feed on any given day or week. It's, it, it is just incredible, and we've done that. So, uh, so we ask people to make a commitment to make love their, their driving force. One of the people on our team named Troy Jackson at our events when he's speaking, we have different speakers all the time, he'll say, on the love and politics pledge he likes to do it he says i just wanted you to take a look at the the description on the back love is patient love is kind love is gentle love is not rude it goes on like this he said could you insert donald trump's name in there donald trump is not donald trump is not donald trump is not and you watch people just be pained by the fact that that's not the case now is that just judgment against donald trump i sure hope not i hope it's also hey could you insert my name in there I would like to say, you know, Doug is not rude. Doug is not self-serving. Doug is not uh, uh, d- doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Doug delights in d- doesn't delight in evil, but Doug rejoices in good. I, I hope that that's the case. That's what I want for myself. And why we can't hold one another to this standard? So the love and politics pledge is based on that, and then it's four things, real quick, that you will. Use love as the standard by which you hold, to, to which you hold your elected officials. We don't think it's too much to ask someone if they're going to serve the common good to comport themselves in their public and professional lives in a way of love. Like I watch people in retail. I watch people at a Jimmy John's have to act in a certain way according to the, the, the guidance of their, of their job. That the president of the United States is not held to a standard of not being an asshole is unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. So that we hold them to a standard of love in their professional and public lives. I'm not even saying all in their personal lives. I'm not saying dig around, find every old text that they wrote to someone or find a mean thing someone said to someone else. But, you know, just when you're doing your job, could you comport yourself in a way that comports with love? Uh, And then you would speak up against anyone who won't as a political leader, and you'll call them to change and accept them if they do that you will support candidates, but regardless of their political side, who do comport themselves in a way of love with your thanks. 
you'll recognize them. And fourthly, you'll ask politicians to hold one another accountable and no more of this, well, I wouldn't tweet it that way, that we ask the industry of political representation to raise its standards of self-discipline and use the standard of love to do so. We don't think it's all that much, but it blows people's minds, right? Like when they're like, why are why of course why would we not do this why haven't we been doing this why why is someone not bringing it up and it's not that we stumbled onto a genius idea it's that people have known all along this is how it's supposed to go now that that picks up on on something that you know as i've looked at your materials a little bit i mean i haven't gone probably as in depth as as uh, many or as i should whereas we will in the future soon but i i don't see um Oh, uh, promotion of particular policies or candidates as much as I see a very proactive way to engage in politics, to engage in, in, in love, to have a wise critique. It's not about it's the, the, the organization is not anti-Trump. It's pro-love and pro-loving engagement. Right. And as such, it, it's not really a partisan thing. Yeah, it shouldn't be. Look, the people that make it partisan are Republicans, not to be defensive or anything. But I voted for Republicans before for president and everything. You know, uh, like it's it's not about it's not about that. But the people for whom there is no movement that that they think any critique of Donald Trump is somehow a partisan critique. It's like, right. oh come on, just it's more. It's more than that. The partisan. The partisan. The partisan is Trump or anti-Trump. It's not even a Republican Democrat anymore. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, you're right. And look, we don't, uh, our, our motto is, um, you know, make the common good your voting criteria. Right. Now, embedded in that is our notion that what the common good is, is not definable to a list. Okay. That goodness is best explained by what it's best understood when you see it not in action right it's what's what's not good well stuff that's bad right and i know that can seem now this is this is what requires some maturity from people this is what a spiritual person grows into is it's not about a list this is jesus's teaching it's i didn't come to abolish the law of moses i came to fulfill it Right? I think this is that same idea. I didn't come to say you shouldn't have a list of things you think are, are, are good. I'm just saying there's more to it than just that list. So each one of us knows what good is. And we begin with the assumption. Now, this is where we become like a Quaker, that we know that there's a light in you, and that light is what should be your reference point. And that, that light of goodness is what you know. And goodness is always conditional. This is where I become a postmodern Quaker. It's a conditional response where you are in a place to make a decision about what is good. And I'm not saying that that I'm not buying into this old like you know uh, the I, I have a choice between evils and nothing's good, so I just have to choose the lesser of two evils. I think that's utter nonsense. I think the only right way we end up with that is by somebody trying to pitch war. Yeah, and, and yes, I'm talking to you, you know, Augustinian uh, theologians and in, in church, uh, but. Uh, it's also just people have given up on the good, right? right. Um, what's lesser than evil? Good. Try to do some good. <laughs> and so we don't tell people in politics what is good. We say, you know what good is. And look, if, if, you, if voting for Donald Trump, you can find the good in that, go ahead. But don't tell yourself that good is not an option. Do good. Believe in good. And the, the thousands of people I've heard say to, to me and say publicly, 
Well, I didn't know what else I was going to do. There were no good options. Yeah, but there was a bad, there was a not good option. <laughs> and it was that guy. Right. And, and if that hasn't played out, and now look, you could say, well, I think it was also Hillary Clinton. Well, then don't vote for either one of them. But yeah, not voting for her yeah, didn't mean yeah, you yeah. had to vote for him for the yeah, love. Yeah. Now, a lot of my friends that want, that want Joe Biden to be president and like me wanted Hillary Clinton to be president, they will say, yeah, but if you give people an out and tell them they don't have to vote for the Democratic candidate and they write in someone else, then you're going to get this third party thing. And lot. like, OK, look, if that's the price we have to pay, that people maintaining the choice of good and not being like I'm stuck with two evils uh, is that they're going to vote for a third party. Well, great. Let's overwhelm the system with those who can connect the good to this candidate and the not good to another candidate and do what they want. And look, it's, it's not that I want to run around and try to convince people that Donald Trump is not good. If Donald Trump doesn't convince you that he's not good, there's nothing I can say that's going to convince you of that. Guy's like a self-cleaning oven. He does all the work for you. It's can you get to a point where you will act in such a way that will match what you know is good and what you know is right? Uh, my friend Tim Keel uh, said a long time ago, he said, yeah. I believe, I, yeah, all these friends, I, I believe in the whatevers of, of, uh, of, of what is good. Um, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is uh, praiseworthy, think about these such things. And he said, I love the whatever, all yeah. of it, whatever it is. It's not some things and not others. It's whatever is good. Just spend your energy on that. So we take the approach of the common good. And then we also do some biblical stuff. And we say in every tradition, they have a sense of common good, which is caring for your neighbor, blessing those uh, outside of your own group and tribe. And so we have a nice description and it's laid out in there. I think it's worth, I think it's worth people reading and, and preaching. And uh, well, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want people to think this is all we're doing, but we're trying to put together a series of resources with our electionaries, which are biblical reflections for this election, seven to nine minute sermons and prayer, uh, 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 things that we put out, like you mentioned, the pray for the president and the love and politics pledge and uh, what we think the common good is as resources for churches who don't know what else to say and talk about. And they're like, oh, I can't talk about politics. Right. We're like, well, I don't know. Maybe you could just have the people in your church take the love and politics pledge. Could you do that? Could you do that? And then you begin to realize that this fear of I don't want to offend someone doesn't fit the gospel very well and certainly doesn't fit our political system very well. Yeah, and that, and that uh, is such a, a, an important point for some people who say, well, I don't want to talk about politics. Well, then you pretty much just have to close the Bible. <laughs> That's right. I mean, the Bible is just chock full almost on every page of some uh, comment on the oppressor, or how to live with uh, those you don't um, agree with. And, and living together is a politic. It's a Yes, the body politic, we tend to call it. It's, it's, it's what you do. Uh, I was listening to one politician, uh, oh, it was Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, saying, I don't like being called a politician. I would rather have somebody say, this is what it means to be a politician. Totally. Yeah, rather than disclaim it, redefine it, because th that word's not going to go away. No, no. And, and look, I get it. Like I play, I, I play those games and I've right. played them for a long time. And I don't want people calling me a pastor and a minister. And I want to have more flexibility than what the social construct of that name means and, and all the rest of that. But I, I don't it. know. I think I was kind of bullshitting a lot of that. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I still don't want to be called a pastor just because I think it, it demeans the, the role of past. It takes the pastoring that I think is a communal act and puts it into an individual. Yeah. Um, in the in a in a politician though it's like i don't know there's only one of those slots like 
to be a governor or to be a congressperson or to be a senator or a mayor or a city councilwoman. Like only one of those. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> but but I you know I think we all uh, should see this. And and I'll tell you if look if if we haven't all found the the log in our own eye through seeing the gigantic speck in Donald Trump's eye, um, then what good is it? Right. I mean, at the end, we're going to save some people and we're going to protect this planet and we're going to stop this madness and the fever will break um, both literally and metaphorically. And this guy will be be not bothering the good people of this country any longer. But if we all just think, wow, wow, what was that? I don't know how that happened. How'd that come about? I don't know. Let's just move on. that's that's not. I mean, I'm all for moveon.org, but I don't want us to move on dot org on this thing. I don't want us. I don't want us moving on because it will just do to, it again uh, well, in, another, in another yeah manifestation. I'll tell you that whoever wrote you know old ancient uh, Hebrew proverbs and said you know a fool repeats his folly the way that a dog returns to his vomit. Uh, it's been a human impulse for a very long time that we will do it again. Yes. There's, there's no doubt about it. And when we do, we will have to recognize that we've been a fool and let's, let's be wise and not foolish and, and help one another to be wise and not foolish. And it's just really, really hard Uh, because look, nobody's better at this than someone else. Some people just have a few more skills or a few more um, temperamental leanings or a few years more of practice. But we're all beginners at this. You know, we used to say around Solomon's porch, we're all beginners at love and and we're we're trying and we're and we're doing the best we can some days and we're not doing the best we can uh, other days. In fact, my, my friend um, now here's one who I don't know if, if you're going to know him. Um, uh, uh, Stan Mitchell from from uh, out of Nashville. Oh, church called, that, one, that was not part of church, our overlapping circle of yeah church, church called grace point he tells uh can, can i tell a little folksy story that i'm borrowing from uh from stan um, stan said he had a mentor of his that was really important in his life when he was a young uh, a young man and uh a few years later decades later he he reconnected with this guy and the guy had gone from being a fairly significant high profile person he uh to having to stay at home and care for his wife who had alzheimer's or dementia or something and and he went to him and he said, you know, Phil, what uh, what what's it like for you to now have gone from this high platform sort of thing you were doing with all this influence to now the last five or six years living at home and basically being a in home caregiver to your to your wife? And the guy was Scottish, and he said, you know, uh, so I'll do a terrible Scottish brogue, but he said, you know, when I die, I'm going to stand before the Lord, and the Lord's going to say, uh, hello, and I'm going to say, Lord, I did the best I could. And the Lord's going to say, no, you didn't, but I love you anyway. Welcome home. <laughs> Isn't that great? I did the best I could. No, you I love it. No, you didn't. Don't worry <laughs> about that. This is not, I did the best. Some days, you know what? We don't do the best we could. Right. Some days we, 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 we half-ass it. Some days we mail it in. Some days we're cruel just for our own pleasure. Some days we're just snarky because we chose not to take the high road. It's not about I did the best I could, but there's this invitation to a home that you're going to live in. So around Vote Common Good, like I know it sounds like we're just trying to be better than everybody else, but um, our friend Dan Dietrich, who does work with us, he wrote this song called The Hymn for the 81%. I don't know if you've heard it on 
Yes. YouTube so, and so on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just an incredible moment of, of insight. At the end of the song where he sort of critiques the people of his own tradition for putting kids in cages and defending the president, he moves to this part at the end and he says, um, come home, just come home. Right. You, you taught me to love the sinner, so I'm trying to love you now. Come home. Right. You know, and that's that's this real sense. Like that's the thing I think that's in the faith that I want to hold. I think it's the thing in the American imagination. It's this thing we're trying to push forward to, is, yeah, of course, error and mistake and not living up to, constantly. It's, but then what? Right? It's that moment of could you pursue the common good, then, or do you only do it if you get all your ducks in a row and everything is just right and everything's locked in and everything's everything's going going according to plan and uh, i'll tell you i mean most of our churches have trouble with this most of our relationships most of us inter like the internal relationship you have in whatever you know inner family life conflict that we all have going on is barely able to survive this so right. there's days where i think you know in light of all that we're doing pretty good um, <laughs> so all right, that was a lot of rambling. Sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right. I, I've enjoyed having this conversation with you after a couple of decades. <laughs> Just in time. You know, with those kinds of guys. <laughs> like, like, like that's, it's not an Anabaptist thing. You just wait for the time to be right. And... You know, no, I think it's more of my, uh, oh, I don't know. It's just more of my number five on the Enneagram. Oh. I, I just kind of lurk and watch and wait. Yeah. And then I, I, then I can speak out of my deep wisdom. Yeah, well, well, I'm glad you are. And, uh, and hey, what's 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 the name of your church, and 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 where where in Idaho for people who are? So we are uh, in a suburb of Boise, Idaho, Meridian, Idaho. I think it is percentage wise the fastest growing community in mm -hmm. the United States, and uh, we are presently called Emmaus because that's what the core group we began with uh, called it before we even came as the planting pastors. And now we're just, if you know, as we go through our replanting process, that name is up for grabs because we find that most people can't pronounce it. And even most Christians don't know what it refers to. And so it's a, it's a great story in Luke 24 that came up in the, la the lectionary this last week. But, uh, but for now, we're known as Emmaus Christian Fellowship. Uh -huh. And uh, we're in the replanting process looking for people who want to jump in and oh. work with our well, I have a Somebody I've, I'm a huge fan of named um, Stephanie Milani, who lives in that area. I will tag her in this post and send her your way, unless you know her already. No, not yet. No. Um, yeah, those, those, those days with Alayla and created a lot of relationships and connections that I've found uh, keep overlapping as, as the years go by. Yeah. Well, hey, this is this is really great. Thanks for chatting. I I appreciate the the time that you've uh, been uh, you've provided us, and uh, we'll we'll definitely be uh, directing our folks to take some look at Common Good, book Common Good, and we're going to be part of that's going to be part of our Sunday conversation. Oh, good. Uh, Zoom this week, so. Well, and we we were planning to bring our bus tour through uh, Idaho, right. and we that's got right. stopped. We're not we're not done yet. Uh, we hope there's a time when it's safe to travel, because that means the country will be in a place of safety. And if it is, then we're we're going to get back out and we'll come to Idaho. Well, that, that's right. That's what I thought. Oh, hey, you, you're not coming in April. You might have some time on your hands. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, I don't know about you. I feel busier now than ever in my life, partly because it's this Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call, and yeah. conference calls, and, and we just keep setting up all these all these things. And, well, things for me have shifted uh, gears because I'm not coaching. The coaching is done. Athletic, 
no sports. And, uh, but that freed up time that's easily got eaten up by other things as well. So no, it's like a Miss Pac-Man, you know, it just comes by and I don't know, maybe gobbles up anything there is every little blue dot. That's time. It's been eaten. It's chewed up. All right. Well, thank you so much, Doug. Hey, my pleasure. A blessing to you and look forward to hear more. Right on. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Let's see. Let's see is right. Let's see. Yeah.